Thank you very much. Lisa's gonna need it. <laughs> Stuck in here with me. Don't be nervous. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> okay. You guys ready? Okay, ladies and gentlemen, we are rolling into another episode of the Candace Owens Show. And I have to tell you, I have been absolutely obsessed with Iran lately. I think a lot of Americans are, uh, given the recent news um, that we killed Soleimani. I'm saying his name wrong. I've just learned actually it's Soleimani, because I am here um, with Lisa Daftari, who is um, an Iranian guest who specializes in a lot of foreign policy. Um, Lisa is the founder and managing editor of Foreign Desk at ForeignDeskNews.com. Lisa, welcome to The Candace Owen Show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm a huge fan of yours. Thank you. For, Thank you. For many years, I've been following your trajectory um, and have always had so much admiration for someone who takes their personal belief, no matter how unpopular it may be, <laughs> and, and literally turns it into a movement. And, uh, <laughs> You're tremendous, and thank you for having me. Thank you. I really appreciate that. Um, so I will say one thing that, that I, I've always tried to be true to myself, and um, I never go out there and pretend to be an expert on everything. I think that's actually where a lot of people fall flat, is they think that they have to be a know-it-all. Um, so I spent a lot of my early years being just kind of really focused on black America, um, get, then getting very deep into American politics, and just recently have really um, been interested in the Middle East and have been reading a lot of books about it. Um, and of course, right now, America, at least the left, thinks that we are going to plunge ourselves into a war with Iran. Um, and you know a lot about the Middle East. You are Iranian yourself. Both of your parents come from Iran. And I just first want to introduce my audience to who you are um, so they don't say, why does this girl have any right to say anything about what's going on? So talk a little bit about, about you and yourself. Yeah, you know, um, other than the fact that I've studied the region, and this is my area of, of expertise for, for many reasons, both in my coverage as a reporter, as an investigative reporter covering this area on counterterrorism for for many many years um, but you know I had an advantage because these were my dinner table conversations growing up the fact that my parents had to leave Iran and that we could not live there was always on my mind it was the, what my curiosity was all about what do you mean your parents could not live in Iran and you had to leave just during the revolution this is uh, my father left before the revolution he was uh, basically a study abroad student to New York uh, so he you know had that advantage of, of speaking English and, and being there before but he had all, you know, his, his hopes and dreams were to become a doctor and go back to Iran and, and practice there. Um, my parents left just before the, the revolution, my, my mother a year before when they got married. Uh, and they moved to, to New York thinking, well, this might be a temporary thing. We'll just stay out of the country and we'll go back when things calm down. But as things got more and more tumultuous at the uh, beginnings of the Iranian revolution in 1979, they stayed uh, in New York. And my uh, the rest of our family, my grandparents, uncles, aunts, all, all joined them. Why can't they live there? Because they didn't feel safe living there. They didn't feel free living there. Um, my parents were um, extremely cognizant of the fact that they wanted to give their children a better future. And, you know, we, we grew up perfectly Iranian. We spoke the language. We ate the food. We loved and adored the culture. But we also grew up um, very much in love with the United States and the American culture that gave us this amazing home and all these wonderful opportunities. So it's it's actually very interesting because people always ask me, like, you know, I, I sang opera, I play the piano, I play the violin, I speak four languages, I played soccer, I played tennis, you know, I, I, I dance ballet. Why? And I said, because I'm an immigrant. And because I grew up with this cognizance that you have this opportunity, 
So, you know, the hopes and dreams of my grandmother, my mother, my aunts were all on my shoulders to take advantage of all of these wonderful opportunities and to make something of myself because that's what they wanted and that's what they wanted for themselves. So, you know, that's truly what I, I call, that's that's my feminist intuition. It's not to kind of burn bras, but it is to take the opportunities that you're given and say, because I'm a woman with opportunities, regardless of the fact that, you know, I'm Middle Eastern or I have dark hair, I have been able to do everything and anything I ever wanted to do because I'm in America. And, you know, those dinner table conversations are really what led me to my career choice. That's what led me to, you know, become such a a, a patriot at heart. It's what led me to, you know, study this region and to set the record straight, which I'm still struggling to do, particularly as, as you said in your opening, about all the false, you know, information that's that's circulating about the Middle East. Well, let's so let's actually take it back. Um, and first off, I want to say uh, I do not recommend burning bras just because it's expensive. So I don't do that <laughs> either. Um, but I want to talk specifically about the Iranian Revolution um, because uh, I think a big issue that we face here in America is that people actually don't have an understanding of history. Um, it's remarkable how uneducated people are about history. I always make the joke um, that most Americans don't know that there was um, such a time before 1776. Right? They only know things that happened in America pertaining to America, but no little little else about the rest of the world. Right. Um, and uh, just a few weeks ago, you know, Colin Kaepernick tweeted his support um, for the Iranian, Iranian regime and said, black and brown bodies oh um, are always being, I'm, I'm paraphrasing here, but are always being tormented by countries right. like America. And I wrote back to him, remember the Persian Empire? <laughs> Was that not a thing that ever happened in the world? Um, but I want to talk about the Iranian Revolution because um, I, I actually have a few friends who, whose parents escaped, which is the word that they used um, just ahead of the revolution. Can you describe what was going on in Iran leading up to the 1979 revol uh, revolution and how your parents describe that climate? Right. So, you know, um, my my parents got out probably a little before the, the the that uncertainty began. But you can ask almost any Iranian expatriate living here, particularly in Los Angeles or all around the United States and Europe, people who, who fled during that time would talk about this buzz in the air. And this buzz in the air was created by what Iranians would describe as, you know, for, foreign influencers. Mm -hmm. And these were people like the Ayatollah Khomeini, who was, you know, the architect of, of, of the toppling of the Shah and the, the revolution, and, you know, they made the mistake, the Iranian people, of believing because a few of their freedoms weren't exactly what they wanted. For example, you couldn't say death to the Shah. It wasn't, it, it wasn't a completely free press. You couldn't, you know, say those things, for example, that, that their lives could be so much better and they came out onto the streets, many out of curiosity and many because they truly believe that, their, that a, a revolution was necessary. Right. What they didn't think about was the next step. Who was going to take over from this... Uh, in this political vacuum that they were about to create. So they came out onto the streets, they have this sentiment, we need more freedom, we're not allowed to say death to the Shah, all of these things, and what happened? And they then it was foreign intervention. It was a, a revolution that was supported by the United States in many ways, by, by President Carter at the time. You know, a lot of Iranians, if you ask them, they think that President Carter is the reason why the Shah fell and their, their country basically crumbled into what it is right now, wow. going backwards. You know, why, why do 
I say going backwards? Because the Iranian people had such tremendous, tremendous potential in the Middle East. They were educated. The women went to college. My mother went to university. There's pictures of her in, in miniskirts. That, you know, this is in the 70s. And, you know, juxtapose that to what you're seeing right now. You know, women that are covered and they're hanged because they are homosexuals. They're hanged because they are, you know, poets and dancers and writers and because they wrote something on their Facebook page. I mean, where are the libs on, on these topics? You know, if you really care about when you talk about Kaepernick and, and, and other C-list uh, actresses that uh, uh, want to talk about and, and opine about the Iranian situation, go ask an Iranian what they think about the Soleimani killing, what they think about their revolution, what they think about the mullahs, what they think about as Islamic extremism. You know, that's the, that's the truth that we're not hearing. And exactly to your initial point that you know, we don't have enough information. We don't have enough information about history. We don't have enough information about foreign policy and foreign affairs. And the only time that we bring our attention to these matters are when it's, you know, something involving the United States, like the killing of, of, of Qasem Soleimani. It's a politicized point. No one really cares about Qasem Soleimani. He was a butcher. He's a terrorist. He's an awful human being. But people are putting that up against the fact that they don't like Donald Trump. Well, I don't want to go to lunch with Donald Trump because he's like a, a brash human being. Well, then I'm going to put my support behind a terrorist. Right. It makes no sense. What's interesting, I, I read a book, and I, I'm I'm probably not getting the name of the book right, but I think it was called Inside the Kingdom. Um, and it was about a woman who um, lived in Saudi Arabia for a long time, and she spent a chapter actually detailing how the Iranian revolution actually had an echo effect all throughout the Middle East. Sure. Because suddenly everyone looked around and said, oh my goodness, if that could happen in Iran, that could happen here. Sure. So everywhere in the Middle East got stricter, right? right? So describe the climate, like you said, your mother was wearing uh, skirts. There was this, you know, this idea of freedom that started to emerge in Iran. People took to the streets. Then you have a 1979 revolution. And what what was the climate like in Iran after the revolution, which is obviously what it is currently today? You know, you look, you can compare it to what we saw more recently in Egypt. When, when a country goes into protest mode, they stay in that perpetual protest mode until they feel some sort of stability. So unbeknownst to most Americans, what causes a person to go out onto the streets and protest? It's not these lofty ideas about, you know, democracy and liberty and justice. It's not. It's, it's, it's putting bread on the table. It's putting your kids in school. It's having opportunities. It's, it's doing all of that. And even though that, those weren't the initial reasons why people came out onto the streets, it was the reason why people stayed on, on the streets. And once the Ayatollah Khomeini took over, he had a hard time harnessing the country back in. So what did they do? They got themselves involved in the Iran-Iraq war. When you involve yourself in a war, when young people are being maimed, they're being killed, what do you do? You call them martyrs. You start giving handouts to their family members. You rally people around the flag and you bring the Iranians in and make them a, a bit more pro-government because we have an external conflict. And what is that conflict now? A full-fledged war between Iran and Iraq that lasted for most of the 80s. Right. So because of that, they basically put the people to sleep and said, you know what, we're, we need you to, to be with us right now because we have, big, we have bigger issues. Young men were sent out to war. So almost every family had someone who was killed or maimed again and, and with the chemical warfare that was going on in the Iran-Iraq war. You know, and, and that's when people become, you know, that becomes the new normal. It becomes what they know. And throughout that time, it was calmer, I should say. And then in the 90s, we began to see student uprisings again and again, saying, this is not what our parents or we in Iran. Yeah, we protested for. This is not what we wanted. And we saw something very similar in Egypt recently in the Arab Spring. But you're very right to say that many of the movements we've seen in the Middle East 
They took a page from the Iranian handbook of 1979. This can happen to us. If we create a political vacuum, this can happen to us. Something much worse can come in. And usually, what is that something much worse? It's that extremist Islamic po politics because they are well organized, they have the funding, and they come in and they become the infallible voice of this regime because you can't argue with a the theocracy. I want to ask a question um, because you brought up how um, we see people on the left, particularly actresses and singers, um, really sort of romanticize the Middle East, I think would be the right word to say that. And I'm going to use an example here, um, just as some anecdotal evidence. Um, I think a few days ago, we saw Rose McGowan, exactly. um, and uh, she's sort of the ground zero of the Me Too movement, I think it's appropriate mm -hmm. to say, um, issue a statement in support um, for Iran, and actually was a blubbering apology yeah. on behalf of all Americans. Uh, pleading with Iran um, and saying that we in America live under a dictatorship. Mm -hmm. And it was very ironic because then just two days later, um, Harvey Weinstein, um, um, who she has been obviously um, championing against with the Me Too movement, um, was found guilty um, of, of rape. And she gave out a cheer and said, hooray. And I thought, this is really interesting, right? So in her mind, um, and, and rightfully so, um, any, a, a man that rapes a woman is a bad person. Um, but the entire Iranian regime is something that she should get on her knees for and apologize right. for. And it's a place that's safe when weighed against America. Right. I'm just interested in how that rationale happens. No, my, my only reaction to all of this is always, how did we get here? Right. How did we get to a place where someone can sit comfortably in their home in West Hollywood or wherever she is and have Stockholm Syndrome for a brutal regime that rapes, kills, that hangs, you know, and particularly with regards to human rights, this regime has been so egregious. Again, to, you know, targeting young, young women and men who come out onto the streets, they just killed 1,500 people. And this guy Soleimani who was killed, that she had so much remorse about his killing, he ordered those killings of the 1,500. He was quoted to say, we should have killed a million people to get these protesters off the streets. Right. I mean, how can you be so hypocritical if you feel so strongly about certain views? And as you said, correctly, you know, you should be against, you know, rape and you should be against, you know, you should be for women's rights, but you can't pick and choose just because you don't like this president. The most damaging thing that I've always written about and, and always say, and I know that, that you, you do the same type of work, is to say, Whatever you're doing right now, and this is talking about political activists and people in Hollywood, whatever you're going to do right now is far going to outlast this president. And it's going to be a part of the patchwork of this country. And it's going to damage our, our, our political culture, our pop culture, where we stand. I mean, look at where we're putting the barometer. You're, you're, you're apologizing to a brutal regime that, you know, shoots protesters, that hangs women I mean, there's a case, you want to compare apples to apples, there's a case that I, I covered and I got an interview with the mother of a young, young girl, Rehane, who was hanged because she brought a case against a man who allegedly raped her. Wow. Wow. So let's pause there, actually, because I want to talk about um, rights or non-rights, rather, for Iranian women, um, because it's something that I've been reading into a bit. What is life like? Um, and and if correct me if I'm wrong. Um, women in Iran are seen, their lives are seen as half of that of a man. Exactly. Is that correct? That's Sharia law. That's, that's, that's Sharia law. That's Sharia law. Okay. So that is the law mm -hmm. in Iran, that right. their, their value you, of a woman's life right. is half that of a man. And it's literal, meaning if you take a witness into court, that woman is equal to half a person. So you have to bring two women to equal one man. 
man. Mm. If you are talking about, forget about divorce, only a man can bring divorce, uh, meaning agree to it. If a woman wants out of a marriage, she basically has to escape. Um, if you divorce, the, 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 the husband gets the children, no questions asked. If he's violent, if he's an alcoholic, if he's a drug addict, doesn't matter. That th these are the laws, um, and with property rights, same thing. So this is this is the law. This is not just a, a you know a cultural perception of a of a woman being half that of a man. In recent years, we have seen um, many movements that have given a voice to the women of Iran and basically highlighting their their courage. I, I'm sure you've seen a lot of these pictures coming out of Iran where a woman will stand on basically you know at a phone booth or something. And I vividly recall this and taking, taking off, off her hijab. hijab. This is the stealthy uh, women's movement. It was brought by journalist and activist Masih Ali Najad. She's uh, given a lot of, of, of women in Iran a platform to basically voice their opinions. Now, this has gotten a lot of them in trouble. A lot of them have been arrested. A lot of them have been killed to make an example out of them. Uh, but I think the women in Iran, as, as in any culture, as in all women around the world, the, these are the courageous women. These, these are the feminists yeah. that we should be really um, championing their voice and their, their platforms. Uh, you know, I, I think that whenever people are stifled, they become stifled for a certain period of time. And in this case, it's very unfortunate because this regime has been in place for 40 years, and that's more than one generation. Right. Meaning that, the, and there was a baby boom at that time during the, the Iran-Iraq war because the, the Khomeini would encourage people, we're losing a lot of children, we need to have more children. So because of that baby boom, we talk about an 80 million uh, population in Iran, a large percentage of that, 67% or more, um, are under the age of 40, meaning this, this regime is all they know. This is a way of life for them. So within America, do your parents still keep, keep a tight network of Iranian Americans, perhaps people that fled at the same time of them? At the, at the same time as your parents fled from Iran? They do. I mean, I have a very, very, um, my family's very, I would say, um, not unique in this way, but I think my parents, we, we didn't grow up in an expat community. We grew up in, in northern New Jersey, right outside of New York City. And my, my parents actually made an effort for us to assimilate mm -hmm. and to, um, you know, speak English very well and to, they didn't see a conflict between, you know, keeping our Iranian roots, but also um, being fully, fully American. Right. Um, what, is when, this, what is the sentiment, though? What I'm trying to get at is what is the sentiment amongst Iranian Americans? It's something that I'm interested in, people that mm -hmm. fled this country for an opportunity. I mean, and we can say the same thing about this in terms of people that have fled from Cuba. I mean, there's sure. so many different countries that people flee from. Um, then you get to America and you you see people that are saying America is a horrible place to live. America is a dictatorship. People that routinely can say horrible things about the president who can threaten the president's lives and, you know, uh, uh, the president's life, whether it's in jest or in sincerity, um, and, and saying that they hope terrible things happen to the president. And they're allowed to do that here because we have freedom of speech, right? right? right. Um, and hearing them say that they're oppressed right that they that they feel like they're living in a dictatorship mm -hmm. what is the sentiment amongst the community people that have actually lived under systems of oppression right i think there's there's to, I mean, this is a gross generalization, but if I were to kind of break it down for you, I think the majority of Iranian Americans, particularly those who either fled before the, the revolution, during the revolution, or just after the revolution, they remember it very, very, very well. And they 
they they don't take anything for granted. Their children are all very very highly educated. Uh, they they push their children to assimilate. They love this country and they want better for Iran. And those are usually the Iranians that push for regime change. They're very happy, regardless of the um, political party, for any politician, any president to push for regime change or to push for you know a better Iran. So they don't see when, for example, when Donald Trump pulls out of the Iran nuclear deal in May of 2018, most of those Iranians that I'm referring to were very happy because they understand that it's a punishment for the regime and not the people, even though the people will be sanctioned, right? right? So they see the difference and they see that it has to get worse before it gets better. And maybe the Iranian people have to, you know, take the, they have to burden, take that burden of, you know, economic hardship, uh, go out and protest, but it will get better. And those, that this, this, this group would be for that. Another group, I would say, is, is a much smaller um, minority of the Iranian expats. They probably are more recent um, immigrants. And they have a, a softer place in their heart for the Iranian people, of course, uh, and the Iranian regime. I don't know if that also can be called Stockholm Syndrome or if it could be something that they see as, you know, let's stay in the nuclear deal, let's use diplomatic means, let's, you know, um, let's use appeasement as a way of uh, either dealing with the Iranian regime or at least having a bit more breathing space for the Iranian people. You know, and I, I don't understand that argument as well, uh, only because we've seen that appeasement doesn't work, mm. you know? And I think that more importantly- well, it could be simply, sorry to cut you off, but it could sure. be simply that they're just tethered to the relatives that are still there. They are, but you know, friends, even the Iranians who are in Iran, I think right. that's, a better, that's a better litmus test to this whole conversation, right? When you say, you know, I, I can have sympathy. I can't have empathy for the people of Iran. I'm not there, mm. you know? I'm not there. I can't really feel what the, the economic pressures- the, the bottom line is that, yes, the sanctions are affecting the people, but only because the regime is allowing the people mm. to face the burden of the sanctions. Well, and then also, even if you if you do the if you run the opposite argument, I mean, when Obama sent a, a billion dollars in cash to the Absolutely. Iranian people, the Iranian people didn't see that money. And they know that. Right. And that's, that's, you know, that's the difference that's most important. Right. Years ago, you know, the, the Iranian regime had really brainwashed the Iranian people into saying death to America, death to Israel. That was their go to protests. Allah Akbar, death to America, death to Israel. Any protest you'd go to, you'd see these, these slogans being said. What are the slogans today? Uh, not Gaza, not Lebanon. I only live for Iran. It rhymes beautifully in English and in Farsi. So, I mean, the, all the slogans rhyme. So it's always such an injustice to, to translate them. But in this case... Say it in Farsi. It's... So they're basically saying... You know, stop putting our money into terrorism. We know what you're, you know, mm. they're basically, they're wise now. They understand. They understand that the money that the, the government got never went to the main street uh, economy, never went to better the lives of Iranians, but only went into terrorism. And, and they're very much aware of it. You know, for every video that comes out about the the uh, funeral of uh, and the procession of, right. of the Soleimani um, uh, uh, funeral, there are so many videos that are sent to me uh, that, I, that I posted on my website with cakes that say, you know, way to go, Trump, or um, dance parties where they're just showing their feet because they don't want their faces to be shown, but celebrations in honor of the killing of Qasem Soleimani. Right, because I did see the images, and and, and to um, just give, just to, to be clear about what I did see, there were 
tens of thousands of people in his hometown, right, in Soleimani's hometown um, that were rushing and um, mourning his death. So at, at, at some level, he was appreciated. Maybe he was a hometown hero. Or, and, or I can offer you another. I would love it, yeah. Okay. So this has been for years, people would say to me, I saw, you know, the Friday prayers. That's when they give their big sermon. That's when they say death to America. That's when the big leaders, the Khamenei and the, uh, you know, all the Ayatollahs line up and they give their big sermons on a Friday. Um, that's when they would people would say to me, but look how many people are there. Mm. We're like, yes, but you know what? A lot of people are required by their work to go there. A lot of people are offered free lunch to go there. Mm. A lot of people are, are it's mandatory to be there. So for the three days that the, the country mourned Soleimani, it was everything shut down. All the stores were closed, schools were out, uh, work was out. Um, many people were required by their work to go there. The government reported that a million people were there. It's impossible when you look at the size of the street, when you look at the the extent of of, of the space that that they had for them to be there. Yes, thousands of people were there. I also there are many saw the examples of that in history too, where people are required to be there, and um, particularly in Russia and Romania. Uh, Ceausescu, remember when yes. when that big thing happened on camera? He actually required everyone to come out and pretend that the people were happy, even though they were suffering right. under this like evil regime exactly and, um, you know, and then one day it tripped forward and you realize that all these people were required to be there exactly. and it was basically a show and for the rest of the world to see it, first of all that and second of all it's exactly what you always talk about you know this regime went after the the lower socioeconomic brackets and that is how they if, if they do have a following if they do have loyal followers it's because they get checks from the government mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. So after the Iran-Iraq war, who are the who's sending their kids off? It's not you know it's not the higher and uh, families in Tehran because their kids are at Harvard University. It's the lower socioeconomic brackets where they have to send their children off to war. Their children die, or they become suicide bombers, or they become you know fill in the blank. They get checks from the government, and because of that, you know you saw videos of Ahmadinejad, the previous president, where there was the 2009 Green Revolution started in the aftermath of his re-election, uh, he would walk down the streets in, in these parades and he would just hand out money, you know, in, in cities where these people would, would take to it, you right. know? And we can draw that parallel here in this country as well. You know, don't drink the Kool-Aid. You don't have to follow the government because they are asking you to, because they're considering you the low-hanging fruit. Right. You know, think for yourselves. And um, I think with the Iranian people, the, the, those groups are so stifled and their children, they become victims to the government because they're asked to, to give up their children in, in order to support the government. Let's actually talk about the government. I think right now a main concern that a lot of people have is that we're going to go to war with Iran, mm -hmm. um, particularly because the leaders of Iran keep saying that they are going um, to answer and they're issuing all of these threats and they've targeted something like, I don't know, something 30 to 50 um, U.S. targets around the world. They're saying that they have the ability um, to bring a lot of damage to. What do you make of those threats? Well, there's World War III will not happen. I didn't it, think that it, would happen. Yeah, okay. why not? Because Iran just doesn't have the resources. The infrastructure, really. Nothing. The sanctions are working. The pressure campaign that the Trump administration has applied to the Iranian regime has worked. It mm. has totally worked in the sense that um, this was a big hit. But even before this hit, we saw the vulnerability of the Iranian regime because we would hear these threats every day. They weren't reported. And again, brings us to the fact that we only woke up to this Iranian threat because of Qasem Soleimani. This threat existed. This chest thumping that the Iranian regime does was going on every single day. Um, will there be a full-fledged war? Absolutely not. They don't have the resources. They wouldn't want to get themselves involved in such a war, and they would never be able to, to 
show up against the United so you States. You see the Ayatollah as bluffing, right? Well, they're, they're bluffing, about... but they do have the, what well, we can talk about asymmetric warfare, right? We can mm. talk about proxy warfare, which is exactly what they set themselves up to do. After 1979, after this regime took over for 40 years, their agenda was to spread their their version of the Islamic State. They're the original Islamic State. They were the Shiite Islamic State. They wanted hegemony in the region. They wanted to spread their influence, spread their power. And what did they do? They set themselves up in, in wherever they could. So first it was in supporting Hezbollah in Lebanon to do their dirty work in the region. Then it became you know, Syria, Iraq, Yemen, Gaza, and now Latin America. We should be, I mean, this is, we, we, we have to wake up to this. If not for, for before, now we definitely have to face the fact that we do have um, Iranian assets in in uh, South America, right at the footstep of the United States. Whereabouts? They've set, they've set themselves up in the form of Basiji fighters, in the mm. form of Hezbollah. Mm. They've set up cultural centers in places like Uruguay, in Bolivia, in Peru, in Brazil, in Venezuela, of course, in Argentina. Mm. Um, there are cases and there are experts who follow the, these these uh, influences on the ground there. Uh, and again, something that we haven't been paying attention to. but becomes more important now because that's where they could do the damage. We can talk about a cyber attack, we can talk about a proxy attack, but a full-fledged World, world War III is not in the cards. What do you make of their in, their influence on Iraq over the years? Because I, I think I was reading an article, and I don't know if it's true, so you feel free to correct me if I'm wrong, um, that they really have been able to really spread their influence in Iraq, and they've sort of got a stranglehold on it. And we're seeing a lot of people in Iraq come out and, and be in support of them and saying that this should have never happened. Obviously, it happened at Baghdad Airport. Right. Um, um, so is that am I reading that correctly? Are we getting a, like a, a fair knowledge of what's happening in Iraq right now? Are they sure. essentially becoming— They're part of the government. And yeah. I think there was a breaking point where the Iraqis looked at themselves and said, look, we don't know how to nation build. And here we are with a political vacuum. And the Iranians are here and something's got to give. So let's work with them. Kind of like what we're doing with the Taliban in mm -hmm. Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. You know, we have to bring them to the table if they're going to be here anyway. And the Iranian influence in Iraq was very strong. It has been for many, many years, but they, it, it dwindled quite a bit when we had a bigger presence in Iraq, of course. Right. When we left, we created a bigger political vacuum and a bigger opportunity for them. So now we have members of their parliament that are from, from the Iranian militias. You have this presence um, of the Iranians there that they probably can't get rid of. And as you said, there are there's a certain segment of the Iraqi population that says, well, we want the U.S. out because we've learned to deal with the Iranians. But you also have another segment that wanted, that, that were the initial protesters that wanted this Iranian influence out of Iraq that are they're more you know holistic they wanted to become Iraqis again right uh, so you have both but what you read is absolutely accurate right and then do, do you think that there any of the bigger powers would ever get involved in this sort of a, a I say tiff but I guess um, a battle I mean Russia China how, what do you take Saudi the read Arabia, on yeah, Saudi Israel. Arabia the read is Israel on um, right. what's going on right now in that environment yeah I think people definitely have their sides but they're not getting involved because I think it, it will you know for Israel for example we know that they've probably been after this guy for longer than the US has if right. we haven't had tabs on him, they should certainly have. Right. Uh, Saudi Arabia, they want the, to diminish the Iranian influence in the region more than we do because they want to export their version of, of Islam in the region. The, the Saudis and the Iranians, that, that proxy war has been going on for longer than, than the one between the United States and the Iranians. So we, we definitely know what side many of these countries will be in. Russia, for example, what's their, their, their um, skin in this game is, is more so about Syria. They want to remain... In, 
you know, they want their influence to remain mm. in Syria. So everyone has some skin in the game and they have their agenda that they want to push forward. You know, the, the issue is that the Middle East for many, many years and, and probably because of, of, of the oil for nothing more is um, has, has been a, a free-for-all. You know, so everyone wants a piece of that pie. Uh, and now, you know, Donald Trump is the president that said, look, we have to have a restructuring of the world order. And, you know, maybe he doesn't say it as, as eloquently as, as he should, but that's exactly what he's doing. He's really... Um, correcting what has been wrong for for many many years people taking advantage of the united states what we do look this is this is really the world's dirty work what we did in taking out Qasem Soleimani i did a segment on al jazeera on saturday and they actually had someone from the iranian regime come there and say donald trump is a terrorist and what he did should be condemned by the world community and my reaction to that was this was the biggest deed that he did for the world community because the world is a better place and he said can donald trump provide evidence that the world is a better place now and I said, you and I can provide the evidence that the world <laughs> is in a better place now. Um, you know, and it's 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 really um, it's interesting to watch this because I think more than anything, we know that uh, anything that goes on in the Middle East is not about you know it's it's perception and, and reality. And the reality is is much different than what the perception is, and the, the political cloud is is very thick, particularly over these topics. Look at look at the issue in Syria. We still don't know what's going on there, right? Mm. And the average American, the average journalist, doesn't know what's going on. There's the so much. The average American can't point out where New York is on a map. Forget knowing Absolutely. what's going on in Syria. <laughs> it's so right? true, and you know, and and there's so much to unpack. You know, to really understand, I think you're asking the right questions. What are the agendas here? What does China want? What does Russia want? Right. What does the U.S. want, really? And I think that was the issue under the Obama administration. The U.S. didn't know what we wanted. Why did we even want a seat at that table? What? How did we want it to turn out? You know, and we switch sides. Are we protecting the Bashar al-Assad regime? Do we want them out? Are mm -hmm. we protecting the Russians? Or do we want them out? You know, uh, well, now there's chemical weapons. Now we draw a red line. Now what should we do? Okay, we'll let the Russians take care of it. The same Russians that we wanted out of the situation. So I think that for for, for many years, it's been that the foreign policy has not been on the, on the radar for journalists, for students, you know, in our school system. We just haven't taught foreign policy. We haven't taught history, we haven't taught political science well. I think there's such a lacking there, and that's why we have such strong, incorrect opinions. Emotional reactions, Emotional like toddler reactions, reactions you know, toddler a reactions. very fearful, yes. with very little knowledge like of I what said, they're even talking about. you don't want about. to go to lunch with Donald Trump, therefore, he shouldn't kill a terrorist. Right, right, that's exactly. That's really what's going on here. Right, and, and there also has been the argument, and I'd like to know what you make of it, that some people feel, okay, I throw him a towel. I admit, I admit that this guy was a horrible person. He wasn't a great person. But was this really a priority for America, right? And that we have a president that's running on the concept of America first and putting American interests first. Um, and many people feel that there's a bigger threat at the border, right? <laughs> and sure. certainly that is um, a more immediate threat in terms of uh, securing our nation's borders. Sure. Um, and like, wh why was this so high up on the list right. is an argument that we're seeing not just on the left, but on the yeah. right as well. Great question. Yeah, it is. It's a great question. Great question. You're absolutely right. Because as much as we can point fingers and say the left has this wrong, the right has never prioritized foreign foreign affairs either. Mm -hmm. We've never prioritized doing the right thing at the right time either because we've been so insular with domestic affairs. But let me just, you know, make the, this, the record straight on this. If we're worried about national security, if we're worried about domestic national security, not I'm not even talking about our assets in, in the region, we have to worry about the Iranian threat. And that is because their tentacles are everywhere. If you look at the world terror, Iran's number one export is terrorism, whether in the form of one single suicide bomber putting on a vest and coming right out to the federal building here in Los Angeles or going to 
the Empire State Building in New York. This, these are the threats that we should be worried about. And they, they can come here, and they did come here, and they probably are here. Mm. But the, the, the main issue here is you have to catch terrorism at its roots, not at its, not at its tentacles. Mm. And when you look at some of these individuals, I mean, Europe is, is really mourning the fact, and I, I think maybe more privately than publicly, that they've been so lax on national security, that they've been so lax on terrorism. You know, and you look at Iran, it's it's a state sponsor of terrorism. They want to call this, this is, this is the irony of the whole situation, they want to call this guy the number two most important person to a sovereign state such as Iran. So this was an act of war because the president assassinated the number two guy, meaning, and, and the equivalent would be if they came out and took out our, our vice president, right? Right. Well, that is exactly how they're trying to make it the equivalent of are they are, are they operating like a normal state i mean this guy wasn't even killed in the country in which they say he was number two in i mean right. he wasn't even there what, what was he doing running around killing people and ordering and if you don't care about americans being killed which i don't, wouldn't understand why you wouldn't be but let's just say worry about you know the syrian civil war that hundreds of thousands being killed and being displaced because of this guy. Mm. Look at Iraq. You know, so a lot of, and I, we can go on and on and on. Look at the protests in Lebanon. Look at Hezbollah in Lebanon. Look at Gaza and the Palestinians getting weapons and supplies from them uh, and, and fighting the Israelis. So we look at the turmoil around the globe and we say, this has to do with America. You can draw a very direct line between Iran's terror funding and the United States' national security. And what's interesting is that nobody wants to talk about the precursor to the event, um, them storming the U.S. embassy. Oh. That is in and of itself an act of war. I mean, I, I, I look this at Embassy Row in D.C. because it's, you know, it's some, it's some of the most beautiful homes to look at. Um, and, and when you walk down that row, I'm just sitting here imagining, could you imagine if a bunch of Americans stormed um, and tried to burn down the embassies in D.C.? That's an act of war. It's we would never do war. that. It's completely uncivilized. Right. So when they ask the question of was this was this number one on our list of uh, it, this guy didn't just spring up like a whack-a-mole. Right. You know. <laughs> I it, like that expression. Yeah. Like, okay, he came up. Should we should we clobber him now or should we wait? First of all, that. And and secondly, you know, President Obama went after a, a low level in comparison to Soleimani, a low level terrorist who was at an Afghani wedding. And 23 of the wedding guests were killed. I know. I know. I say and this the whole time. No Nobody one cared. cared. No one batted an eyelash. Isn't it? I mean. This was such a targeted attack. This was beautiful. And this, you know, I, I do counter hairs. So to me, this was a beautiful attack. Why? Because we only took out the bad guys. Right. Every day in Iraq, there are bombings by different groups, particularly the Iranian militias, at ice cream shops, at schools, at pizza parlors, where ordinary civilians are taken out, where Americans are are taken out. We see this in Afghanistan. We see this in Syria. We see this all around the world. And no one bats an eyelash. Right. I mean, there were so many attacks under the Obama administration. The only reason, and I hate to politicize this, but this is only to basically bring everyone back into having a, a logical approach to this. Right. I mean, it's unfortunate, and, and you're right, because it, it should be something that's not politicized. And I don't remember it being politicized um, uh, when uh, Osama bin Laden was killed. I remember everybody celebrating and saying this was a bad guy, and we got the bad guy, and that was good. And yet we, we very quickly kind of arrived into a place in America where they don't care 
anymore about America. It's not about America. It's, it's about, about America. what team you're on. It's right. And no matter what, mm-hmm. the, no matter what our president does, they feel like they have to be opposed to it. You don't need to like every single thing that the president does. I certainly don't like every single thing that the president does. You shouldn't like every single thing that anybody does, for the record, not even yourself. Like mm-hmm. sometimes I'm like, man, why did I do that? Um, but we, when we get to a point um, where we can't celebrate the, uh, you know, taking out the bad guys, or when we get to a point where we're we're apologizing to evil regimes, right? People in, in, a, in a place where women are seen as half a human being when weighed next to men. That to me is scary. And that's a very dangerous, slippery slope. And it's why I try to use my platform to talk about the direction that we're going into. Saying to people, just pretty much get get your head up for a second, right? Look above the water. Try to see beyond where we're at today. Right. Trump's not going to be president forever, right? right? But this is going to be your country forever, you Correct. know, and, and until you part from this earth. Um, and you need to think very carefully when you speak out against things like that because it's it what kind of a message does it send to the international community exactly right. when we have people in mm-hmm. this country getting on their knees saying you know I'm sorry um, right. to evil people in the world right. just because they don't like the person that's leading their country. Yep, absolutely right. I, I, and I, that's the, the perfect juxtaposition is when you have people sending, you know, pictures with cakes with thanking Trump, but then here we're having people tweet out using their platform mm. with millions of followers using their platform to apologize to an evil regime. I mean, really get it straight. You might not like Trump, but you're you're as exactly what you said. You are you're speaking on behalf of the entire United States to apologize to a brutal regime. I mean, I think it's just low information and high emotion. And and it's funny because and I'm obviously I'm I'm oversimplifying this, but I do find that people that have come to the United States come to the United States legally and have worked for everything they have similar to your family um, and similar to the Uber driver that took me here was from mm. Russia and we had a very long conversation. He talked about how much he loves this country, how grateful he is um, uh, to this leader and what opportunities mm-hmm. he's been afforded since he left Russia. I think he said he left 29 years ago. And I find that remarkable oh, yeah. that the people that tend to respect the environment that they're in are people that have lived somewhere else. And mm-hmm. I do think that part of the blind spot that so many Americans have um, is that freedom almost leads to tyranny. Mm-hmm. In, in a way, mm-hmm. right? They're they're kind of inextricably linked, yep. right? You, you can have so much freedom right. that you just don't realize your own blessings, right. that, you, that you start fighting for tyranny. Right, right. And look at college uh, campuses are a great example of that, you know, where you just don't, they don't have the information. They are riled up to believe something that isn't true. And then they're sent out because they are bored to do something about it mm. uh, with, with, again, lack of facts, lack of, of that rich experience. And you know, it's because, I, I don't know, maybe I owe everything to my parents for having those conversations with us and for, you know, um, making us feel, you know, I, I wasn't an immigrant. I wasn't. I was the child of immigrants. But I carry that immigrant story with me and so, so much ingrained in who I am and that, that um, I'm, I'm, I have so much gratitude for that. Uh, and again, if I didn't have my, you know, even though my, my mother worked in Iran and she was, you know, she went to college, you know, I, she didn't feel the, the brunt of, of, of this regime, but it's, it's so linked to who I am and, and, and watching those women over there and then watching the women's march here, which is embedded with, you know, the, the, the privilege. Well, privilege, but it's also embedded with an anti-Semitic message or, you know, that intersectionality that is just so, so uh, misinformed. That's all I can say. It's just misinformed. misinformed. You know, if you want to stand up for minority rights, learn first about what's going on and, and what you're standing up for and who the true minorities are. Mm. Uh, I think, you know, I, I think we can take a, a 
big message from from this current situation about Qasem Soleimani. And again, my question daily when I go on Twitter or, or any news show is, how did we get here? I mean, the fact that we have to talk about not the news about Qasem Soleimani, not what the implications are for terrorism and the region and for Iran and for America and all of the national security parts, but what it means here back at home that we can't be on the same page regarding such a, a nonpartisan issue. Right. Absolutely. Um, so what what would your message to the world be about all of this, if, if you could get a message out to everyone? You know, I think I'd go back to what you said. We can't agree on everything, and we won't agree on everything. And that's the beauty of this country, that you can be upset about the president, and, you know, in four years, you'll have another chance, you know, every time there's an election. Um, uh, the fact that we have all of these opportunities to hear our voices, you, myself, both being from minority backgrounds, but having the opportunity to sit here and have this conversation and having hopefully millions of people hear it. I think there's not much, there's not too much that all of us can agree on, but when we do have something we can agree on, we should open up our eyes and know, and know that it's for the, the, the bigger good. Look at this issue of terrorism that should really unite everyone. I look back at a post 9-11 America <clears throat> and how it brought so many people together, not caring about what color you are, but just raising the American flag, red and blue. Right. That's the thing that can unite everybody. That can unite everyone. And you said it so perfectly in the aftermath of, of, of uh, Osama bin Laden being captured. I remember the very night. Uh, you know, it brought together so many people and nobody, I mean, everyone gave kudos to to President Obama, uh, President Bush as well, because he had worked to get us there on that one yard line to catch him. A lot of the intelligence community being praised and being applauded. It, it wasn't a partisan issue. Mm -hmm. And now to look at where we've come, I always ask myself, what are our enemies thinking about this right now? I know. That We're giving them work. so much fodder. I mean, if I if I was sitting across, I would say, and I was a real enemy of America, I'd say, let's not plot against them because they seem to be imploding, and that and that is the that exactly. is the very sad truth. Um, I know that you you um, you run the foreigndustnews.com and you have an email list that people can su subscribe to. Is yeah, that right? It's Lisa's top ten. I send out a, a top ten um, email every morning with the just the headlines and and links to the top ten stories of the day for foreign policy, very much with an American angle. What should we know uh, as Americans? You'll sound smarter at work and among yeah. peers. So you can subscribe. Um, I'll put a link on Twitter and you could subscribe. It's important, guys. Honestly, you 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 really yeah. have to get into the the geo. Um, political scene if you want to really understand what's going on in America. They don't teach it enough in school while they're teaching feminist dance theory 101. Um, they aren't really focusing on that. So in, in whatever capacity you can, if you're watching the show, please start paying more attention to what's going on in the world um, because there always are larger implications for America. Um, Lisa, we wrap every episode, I'm sure you've seen my show, uh, with allowing you to leave a voice message for the world, as we call it. Um, so you're going to look into that camera and for two minutes you can say whatever you want. And just so you know, every person in the world watches my show so they will hear it. Yes, they do. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> As they should. Ready? On your mark, get set. World, I give you Lisa Daftari. Thank you, Candice, for allowing me this opportunity to be on your show. I admire you so much because of the passion that you have for your work and taking that passion and creating something so positive for people to hear. And be, my message is very similar. This is this is what I've run my entire life on. I think everyone has a gift. Everyone has passion that, that they want to unleash. But first, get your facts straight. Learn. Educate yourself. Knowledge is the number one one tool in your toolbox then use everything else you have every opportunity when you go to college every every place you're at every cocktail party you're at you can you can educate others you can use your passion for good but before you do that you should create that sense of confidence with knowledge about the world and look 
this this president's not going to be here forever, but we will. And you know, when he's not in office and whoever comes in next, whether it's him again or a Democrat or after that a Republican, doesn't matter. We're going to leave these marks for the next generation. We're going to leave these marks for the next you know, decades to come. And because of that, we need to create a better environment, a more unified environment. If there is something where we can unify our, ourselves, it should be for the strength of America, for the future of America. We are imploding. We're imploding because we're allowing our emotions to create this division between both sides. And when it comes down to it, if a suicide bomber comes into any building, into any school, into any musical concert, they're not going to care whether or not you voted for this president. They're going to want you dead. And because of that, we need to remain vigilant. We need to remain um, united and to know that there's just one United States of America. We should go back to that unity that our founding fathers had when they created this nation. That's amazing. Thank you so much for joining. That was almost exactly two minutes. Wow. Only 13 seconds oh, left. Nice. Thank you for joining. I give it back. <laughs> <laughs> I give it back. I do that in Congress. Yes. I see to Thank you guys for watching the latest episode of The Candace Owens Show. I hope you guys enjoyed the conversation as much as I did. As many of you guys already know, PragerU is a 501c3 nonprofit organization, which means we need your help to keep all of our content free to the public. Please consider making a tax-deductible donation today. I would really appreciate your support.